One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. Hey there, guys, and welcome back to the Inflammation Nation. So before we get into the second test that I would spend my own money on, which is a saliva test for stress chemistry, commonly called the adrenals, um, I want to add a few comments about blood lab testing that I didn't get to during our last chat together. And there's a couple of things that you need to know about laboratory data and laboratory interpretation. And that is, first of all, that, that labs all use their own data to define what is normal. And quite often labs do not agree on what normal should be. But also whether or not you see a problem in the laboratory data is going to depend on if you're looking for a disease to manage or if you're looking for where you have lost your wellness and how to get that back, because those are two very different ways to look at the same information. So let's tackle the first issue first. When you get your blood drawn and you get a report that shows the test that you ran, the results that you got, which are, are then compared to a reference range or what we call the normal range, and part of the problem here is that we tend to think of the word normal as meaning healthy. So if you get your labs back and it's normal, we think, okay, that means I'm healthy. And if it's not, it means I'm not healthy. Uh, that, that would be a mistake for two reasons. And, and by mistake, I mean, I mean equating normal with healthy. First of all, the word normal is being used in a statistical manner. And it literally refers to a statistical average of a set of lab data that's distributed around what is called the normal distribution. And I'm not turning this into a, a mathematics discussion, but you probably know the normal distribution as what we call the bell curve. And that's the thing that we, you know, without, without which most of us probably wouldn't have passed high school physics or, or chemistry, right? You talk about grading on a curve, it's talking about this normal distribution. And to keep it simple, it goes like this, like data analysts at the lab take all of their own data for any given test and they calculate the mean or the average value. And then they basically create a graph that shows how all of the different test results compare to that middle value. And some, some test results will be higher than average, some will be lower than average, some will be closer to the average, and some will be further away from it. And they use something called standard deviations to tell how far any given test result varies from the average. Well, it just turns out that, that almost all lab tests and their normal ranges are defined as being what's called two standard deviations above and two standard deviations below the mean. And you know, from a statistical standpoint, this means that about 98% of all lab tests that are run are going to be called normal and only about two and a half percent of all test results will be called normal. And the numbers might be slightly different than that, but that you guys get the general point. To say it very plainly, normal ranges are very broad and very forgiving so that we don't accidentally diagnose somebody with something that they don't have. And there's an advantage to that. But the downside is that when the normal range is too wide and too forgiving, people who have real issues don't get recognized 
they fall through the cracks and quite often they're told in the medical establishment, well, this is just all in your head or you're just depressed. In this sense, setting a normal range is a trade-off that tries to balance false positives with false negatives. But if you truly understand laboratory data, you'll know this, that the vast majority of people getting lab tests done are people who already have diagnosed health issues and, and they're taking medications that alter their physiology. Again, in this sense, the normal range is a statistic. Let me say this, this is very important. The normal range on your lab test is a statistical average of sick people who are on medications. And believe me, that is not what you want to use to figure out if you're healthy or if you're not healthy, unless you're looking for a disease to manage or manage better with drugs and surgery. And that brings me to my second point. Laboratory data is laboratory data. But what the laboratory data means to any given doctor really depends on the lens that he or she is looking at the data through. Let me explain that. I've already mentioned that looking for disease is one thing while looking for wellness is another. Medical doctors do not learn about health. I mean, that is an indisputable fact. They learn about disease and they learn about pathology. They learn about medications and they learn about surgeries. They learn very little at all about the effects of diet and lifestyle, let alone nutritional supplementation. That's simply not their domain. It's not their expertise. And for most of them, it's not their interest which is why we see so many doctors and nurses who are overweight, they're on multiple medications themselves, and they have relatively high rates of alcohol abuse, smoking, and even things like depression and suicide in some cases. But when someone who has been trained in health and wellness looks at laboratory data, trained in health and wellness, not disease and pathology, not only do we look at it as if there is pathology and disease, we also take those lenses off and we put on the lens that lets us look at data from the perspective of health and wellness. And it turns out that if you take the laboratory reference ranges, what they call normal, which again is a statistical average of sick people on medications, if you take those ranges and you narrow them down to reflect not people who are sick and on meds, but to reflect normal human metabolism and health, you end up with a second set of reference ranges that we often call the optimal range or functional range. So personally, when I look at someone's labs, I actually do two different sets of analyses. The first is to look for disease and pathology. I wouldn't be much of a doctor if I didn't do that. But once I've got a handle on whether or not a disease is there or probably there, or if it's something that somebody else already knows about and they're managing well, then I switch my perspective and I look at the same numbers, but I look at them in a different way. One which lets me, lets me see and understand things that a conventionally trained medical doctor simply can't. Not because they're not smart, not because they're well-intended, just because it's not how they think. So to the conventional mind, there's only normal and not normal. Your labs are either in the reference range or they're not. There's no middle ground. But to me, and the thousands of doctors that I and others have trained in functional blood chemistry analysis, there is this optimal range. There's the optimal range, there's the pathological range, which is the lab normal. 
But there's this middle zone in between where things are not perfectly or truly optimal, but they're not disease either. Let's call them suboptimal. And again, when I do laboratory analysis, I use a color coding scheme to label things that are either green, which would mean that they're optimal, they're red, which means they're outside the laboratory range, or they're yellow, which represents values that are suboptimal and may be associated with things like symptoms and suffering in the absence of a diagnosable disease. In essence, what we do is we take the, the normal range from the lab and we break it down further into what is truly healthy and what is not, but is not yet bad enough to be called a disease. Let's call it a state of dysfunction. Now, one final word on labs, and we'll talk about saliva testing. And that is the fact that all labs set their own reference ranges, with only a few exceptions, thyroid and the lipid panel being the most common ones. The reference ranges are actually set by the labs themselves, not by some external authority to which all the labs conform. And that means it's quite possible to have one lab call a certain result normal when the same numerical value might be called abnormal in a different lab, even in the same lab system, but in a different region of the country. For example, if I were to take someone's blood today and split it into two identical samples and send it to a Quest lab in Florida, and then send the other half of the same blood sample to a Quest lab in I don't know, the mountains of Tennessee, I might get two different assessments as to whether or not certain markers are normal because the labs don't always agree even within the same national laboratory system. Okay, so let's move on to saliva testing and looking at stress chemistry. The first thing to note is that most medical doctors are very behind the times when it comes to things like trusting saliva test results. There was a time early on when saliva testing was kind of working out the kinks, if you will. Results varied, and, and honestly, they, there was a time when they weren't very trustworthy, but that's all been sorted out now. And saliva is a viable testing media for many different lab markers relating to many different systems. You can't test everything in saliva, but you can test a lot, and you can generally trust the results. And in fact, a colleague of mine who owns his own lab in California, and he's a world-renowned immunologist, he said that he was planning on moving almost all of the tests that he runs away from blood to saliva because it's inexpensive and it's easy, collect, easy to collect. Imagine not having to go to a lab to get your blood drawn, but just spitting into a little vial, not having to get a needle, and sending the sample off from the comfort of your own home. So point number one is that saliva testing these days is reliable and accurate for the most part. Again, there are some things that you can't simply test effectively in saliva, and so we don't do those things. Point number two with saliva testing, and when we're talking specifically about using saliva testing to check someone's stress chemistry and circadian rhythm, point number two is that when we test adrenal function, it's important to check multiple data points throughout the day. Again, let me explain. Your adrenal system is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Basically, your brain talks to your adrenal gland, telling it to make more or less cortisol, which is your main stress hormone. And if the signal coming from the brain is very strong, then your adrenal gland makes more cortisol. If the signal coming from your brain is weaker, then your adrenals make 
less cortisol. And one critical thing to understand about your adrenal system is that this is part of your baseline survival system. And, and as such, it is connected to every other major system in your body. In other words, it's connected to everything. Everything from your basic fight or flight responses to blood sugar control, to energy patterns throughout the day, to sleep patterns during the night, and even all of your hormonal systems, classic hormones like your thyroid, as well as your reproductive hormones, and, and even hormones like insulin and glucagon, which are involved in blood sugar regulations. And these connections are bidirectional. Cortisol affects them all, and they all affect cortisol either directly or indirectly. And so it's important for us if we're going to have a conversation about what test do we value and where do we spend our money, it makes sense to me that we take a look at or seriously consider saliva testing. Now, one takeaway from what I just said is that adrenal dysfunction may be involved in any type of metabolic challenge with any system in your body. And furthermore, when an adrenal dysfunction is present, it is always secondary to something else. Your adrenal stress is, or your, your ability to handle stress is about your adaptive capacity, how your body handles stress and how it gives you some degree of capacity and resilience to be able to take a hit from a physiological standpoint and keep working. And that's a broad term. Stress is a broad term, right? It's not just about mental and emotional stress. It's about metabolic stressors like inflammation, uh, chronic infections, leaky gut, hormone imbalances, blood sugar issues, and so on. Then there's physical stressors like injuries or chronic physical strain from, say, heavy physical labor or working out too hard and working out too much. But let me go back to a point that I had just made a few minutes ago, is that when you test for adrenal sufficiency or adrenal dysfunction, and that's just two different ways of seeing the same thing, it's important to collect multiple data points during the day. When you look at adrenal testing in the world of conventional medicine, quite often they do it through blood testing. And all they do is they check their cortisol first thing in the morning. And the reason for that, it's not that it's wrong, it's just their perspective. Because when a medical doctor wants to investigate adrenal status, they're doing it to rule in or to rule out either Addison's disease or Cushing's disease which are medically diagnosable conditions where you're either failing to make enough cortisol to sustain basic functions or you're making too much. But outside the world of these diagnosable conditions, just like the conversation we had with blood testing, there's a lot of states of dysfunction with the adrenals that have nothing to do with having the extreme manifestations of either Cushing's or Addison's disease. But nevertheless, even though they're not diagnosable diseases, have tremendous impact on your health and your well-being. Because remember, everything is connected to the adrenals and the adrenals are connected to everything else. And we talked about just a brief list of some of the key things that um, the adrenals or, or stress chemistry have an, uh, an impact on. And so instead of just doing a morning blood test, which only tells you about, number one, one moment in time, and if, let's say you do a blood test first thing in the morning and we can effectively rule out Addison's or Cushing's disease, either too high or too low cortisol, what about the rest of the day? And that's important because cortisol is produced in what's called a circadian rhythm. You don't make the same amount of cortisol at four in the afternoon that you did at eight o'clock in the morning. 
And so you may have a normal first morning cortisol level, whether you measure that in saliva or blood is irrelevant. What happens to your cortisol levels at noontime, at four o'clock in the afternoon, or when you go to bed? Or, or what can we theoretically assume is happening with your cortisol during your nocturnal period while you're sleeping? And so it's important when we're assessing adrenal function to broaden what we look at, to not just get locked into one data point. And if we can safely assume that someone doesn't have Addison's or Cushing's, which are relatively rare as it relates to the whole world of adrenal dysfunction. There's a lot more people with non-disease-based, non-pathology-based adrenal dysfunction than there are people with diagnosable diseases. And so the best way to do that is to collect four saliva samples throughout the day. That's pretty much the standard these days, although now we're starting to do what we call six-point cortisol, uh, and, and we'll probably talk about that maybe in the next episode. But basically, the labs that do this adrenal testing ask you to collect four samples first thing in the morning when you wake up, like within 30 minutes or so, and then at noon, then at mid-afternoon, and then at night, because there is a characteristic graph, if you will, where we expect cortisol to be highest first thing in the morning. We expect it to taper fairly rapidly towards noon. And then it tapers much more slowly from noon to mid-afternoon to nighttime where cortisol should be its lowest right before you go to bed. Now this circadian rhythm, this variability in cortisol production, Number one is actually controlled by your brain. It's not controlled by the adrenal gland itself. But we, we are supposed to have higher cortisol in the morning than any other time during the day because of the nature of what cortisol does to our physiology. Basically, it wakes up our brain. It's involved actually in waking up from your sleep cycle to create alertness and focus. And it's also involved in mobilizing your energy system so that when you wake up, what should happen is you are awake, you are alert, and you have energy. Now, you don't need so much of that when it's time to go to bed. And so the lowest point of cortisol should be when you're going to bed, at least during the times we measure, because the reality is, is that the lowest cortisol production is somewhere between 1 and 3 o'clock in the, in the nighttime, like, or I should say in the, in the very early morning when you're sleeping. But nevertheless, of the four different samples that we collect with saliva, the lowest point of that should be, say, 10 o'clock at night when you're getting ready to go to bed. And why is that? Well, what you don't want is you don't want enough cortisol there to keep your brain awake and also to be creating a whole bunch of energy. You, you actually want to experience an accumulated fatigue from your daily activity. You want your brain to start shutting down so that you can close your eyes and drift off to sleep and then sleep all night long until you wake up in the morning because your cortisol has elevated and now it's there to wake up your brain and to give you energy to go and tackle your day. But it's one thing to talk about all the things that should happen. <laughs> and it's another thing to talk about the things that don't happen or the things that do happen when adrenal dysfunction exists. Now, let me close out this episode and we'll talk more about adrenal dysfunction and saliva testing in the next episode. You probably noticed, or maybe you haven't, but you may have noticed that I haven't used terms like adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion. And that's because I don't really like those terms. And I don't like those terms because they're not physiologically correct. 
If I say to someone, you have adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion, it makes it sound like the adrenal gland is depleted. It's just tired and it, it can't respond to the stressors that are in your life. And we all have them. We have them all the time. But rather, I've used terms like adrenal dysfunction or adrenal sufficiency. And, and that's certainly more of an appropriate term because assessing your stress chemistry using saliva testing is about making sure that you're making the right amount of cortisol at the right time of the day. And, it, it, and it's important to realize, and, and I have other podcast episodes where we talk about this, it's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis for a reason. The adrenal gland is really just a passive manufacturing facility. It, it only does what it's told to do. In the absence of something wrong with the gland itself, which would be things like Cushing's disease or Addison's disease, in the absence of those diseases, adrenal dysfunction quite often comes from either too weak or too strong signals coming from the brain, your hypothalamus and your pituitary, or some kind of dysregulated rhythm where you might be making the right type of cor or the right amount of cortisol at a certain period of time, but you make an inappropriate amount at others. And so we find that there are people, some there's different patterns. Let me say it this way. We can group individual test responses or results into several different categories. One might be where we have too low cortisol. This is what is commonly called adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion, where when we sum up the results of each of those four different saliva samples throughout the entire day, the amount is just not enough to do what cortisol is supposed to do for us, which remember, it's about waking us up and giving us energy. So too low cortisol. We can also see somebody who has too high cortisol in total, meaning that when we sum up all the data points throughout the day, the sum total is too much. That can also have implications for things like brain function and energy production. And sleep, by the way, which we may have to tease out as a, as a separate episode. But what happens if someone has a normal total cortisol production, but they're making the wrong amount at certain times of the day? Maybe somebody wakes up and, and their morning cortisol is too low, but at midday it's too high, <laughs> and in the afternoon it's too low, and at night, it's too high. And so meaning that they're, the timing, the rhythm and the timing of their production capacity does not match this normal circadian rhythm where it starts at high in the morning, tapers to noon, and then tapers slowly towards the nighttime. And that is what we call a circadian rhythm disruption. And we can have combinations as well. We can have somebody who makes too little cortisol who has an abnormal circadian rhythm. Or they might make too little cortisol but the rhythm and timing seems to be appropriate. Somebody might have too high cortisol in total and also have a circadian rhythm disruption, or it can be too high and have a normal circadian rhythm. Or you can have, as we just said, a, an abnormal circadian rhythm, but a normal total. And so this idea of having, well, you either have adrenal exhaustion or you don't, number one is physiologically incorrect. And number two, it just doesn't account for the nuances that can occur within individual people. And this is one of those situations where you don't know until you check. Early on in my career in functional medicine, I would try to predict what somebody's circadian rhythm looked like and whether they had high cortisol or low cortisol. And I was wrong a lot. <laughs> and so I started to learn to not guess and to wait for the objective data to tell me what their physiological or, or what their 
their stress chemistry capacity and their resilience was. So let me leave you with this one thought. If, if it's about a system and not just about the gland, where, where really is the integrity of the system generated? And actually the answer to that is in your brain. So if you've ever had a saliva test done or you ever get it done in the future, even though we call it an adrenal test or we're testing your stress chemistry, really what we're doing is we're checking the communication between your brain and your adrenal gland. So whether your cortisol levels are too high or too low, that tells us more about your brain than it does about your adrenal gland. If you have or do not have a normal circadian rhythm, that tells us more about your brain than it does about your adrenal gland. Because again, the gland is just the manufacturing plant and they make whatever central command says to make. So whether it's a quantity issue, how much cortisol making, or a quality issue in terms of circadian rhythm uh, appropriateness, it's really more of a brain test than it is an adrenal gland test. All right, I'll leave it there as a teaser. Hopefully you'll join me again on the next episode. We'll continue our discussion about saliva and then we'll make our way to the third test that I would certainly spend my own money on and that would be some kind of a good stool test. All right, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.